Well, that uh, lovely soothing music is a traditional Chinese-Mongolian folk song called Swan Goose. And it's an ideal introduction, uh, as you'll hear, to an unusually personal account of relationships between China and Australia. It's a story of friendship and respect between two men. Born in the same year, 1946, one in Adelaide, one in Shaanxi province in northern China, Both regional areas, both had teachers as parents, though with very different teenage experiences, as uh, you'll come to understand. But their lives began to seriously overlap about 10 years ago due to their mutual interest in each other's cultures. Now, we don't often hear these stories, though these people-to-people interactions, as we've just heard, really, matter so much to developing inter-country relationships. I'd like to introduce you to David Walker. He's an Australian historian who's taught Australian studies in China. He's collaborated with his friend Li Yao to produce a poignant memoir, Happy Together, Bridging the Australia-China Divide. Li's translated more Australian literature into Chinese than any other person, 38 books thus far, beginning with Henry Lawson, then moving on to Patrick White and others. And I should add that Karen Walker, David's wife, made the book possible and you'll hear why too. Plus, we'd love to have spoken to Li in China, but uh, apparently he's not one for radio interviews. Fortunately, David Walker is. Welcome to Saturday Extra. Thank you, Geraldine. It's very nice to be here. Just a little brief explanation, please, as a scene setter for why you chose Swan Goose, just to help us get into this story, please. Yeah, sure. Um, Li Yao grew up in Inner Mongolia and um, he was a, he's a good singer. He's got a nice voice and he loves uh, these songs, especially with a little baijo inside him. So at most gatherings, he'd be persuaded to sing this song. Uh, so it's very familiar to us and we love it dearly. Now, your relationship with Li Yao, I know you met later in life, but how did it come about? Well, he uh, he was, as you say, the great translator and he decided in 2012 that he would translate my earlier book, Not Dark Yet, A Personal History, knowing that I was going to take up the Chair of Australian Studies at Peking University in early 2013. So he knew that I was coming. He understood that it was an opportunity to translate a book with the author present and most of his translations are not done that way. So it was an opportunity for both of us really to talk about translation, talk about writing, talk about literature and talk about a whole lot of other things as well. And why on earth did he focus on translating really demanding Australian work like Patrick White, which a lot of Australians haven't read? Yes, yeah, well, it's not a bad question. I mean, I think in 1980, he was given a copy of uh, Henry Lawson's short stories by an Australian teacher who'd been posted to Inner Mongolia. Uh, They sent her and a few others there because they knew Australians were tough and they needed to be, but she handed him a copy of the Henry Lawson stories. He loved The Drover's Wife and saw certain parallels in the landscape and the setting within Mongolia. So he he got stuck in, uh, translated it and uh, published it in a magazine called Grasslands, which was one of the few literary magazines in in Mongolia at the time. And, uh, of course, Patrick White won the Nobel Prize and... I think you point out in the book there's quite a bit of status in China in translating such a an honoured winner. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, it's um, 
a prize, and especially a big prize like that one, um, takes away any doubt you might have about whether the book is a worthy one. Mm. You know, it settles mm. that question. So you don't have to worry about whether this is a good or a bad book or otherwise. Uh, you know that it's been... Um, Acclaimed, Approved of. <laughs> acclaimed. And, but it also it also put Australian writing on the map for that very reason. Mm. Nobel Prize means we have a literature. So Li Yao, I think, originally thought that he was translating a literature that gave him an opportunity in a space that no one else had really got into much. But increasingly he became attached to the writing and to the country and to the language. I mean, it is interesting. You, you mentioned in the book that The Thornbirds by Colleen McCulloch was very much not uh, Patrick White, mm. is the most popularly translated Australian book in China. Yes, yes. There are thornbirds everywhere. This, if you go into the, uh, the foreign languages bookshop in uh, the middle of Beijing, they've still got a special shelf uh, full of Colleen McCulloch. Good Lord. And uh, there were f- at least five separate editions of the Thornbirds, not just different, uh, you know, different publishers. See, that, I mean, I think it came out at the end of the Cultural Revolution, didn't it? And you make the it point did. it was sort of called scar literature. It was all about the pain and anguish <laughs> that, yes. in effect, she was tapping into. Now, you've written the book in the third person, describing mm. yourself and Li Yao as the two roosters in the different cultures. And Li Yao's family, uh, as small potatoes which I think you also apply to yours too, yes. just to describe what do these um, images mean? The small potatoes is a kind of joking reference that Chinese people have to ordinary people and ordinary lives. Li Yao regarded his family as a fairly ordinary family. Mm. Now, your book starts quite evocatively with the story of Li Yao's wandering cousin and that music we heard, Swan Goose, um, is part of that story. Tell us a little about the cousin and what you were hoping to achieve with that opening because Li Yao's whole story is incredibly moving. I see Gareth Evans, the former foreign minister, has said, look, he thinks it's up there really with Yung Chang's wild swans, you know, as an amazing account of a life lived in the last sort of half century in China. But, yeah, what were you trying to achieve? Well, the cousin uh, came up in discussion uh, as we travelled around China, most particularly through northern China and Inner Mongolia. And he just happened to mention the cousin as a rightist who was on the wrong side of the revolution and partly because of the landlord status of the family and the intellectuals in the family. And he was a gifted musician. He was a prankster, a joker, a person who didn't really know when to shut up and, and, and when to talk. You know, he, he didn't have a good sense of the politics and the ne- necessity to be careful, uh, got himself into a great deal of trouble and was dismissed from his teaching role, although you'd imagine him to be a terrific teacher, you know, that great musician, uh, gifted across a number of instruments, a witty, talkative, jovial kind of fellow, but um, not wanted in their system at that time. No. So he sets off to find the ancestral village, which is important to Chinese people, and he knows that it's in Shanxi province, 
So off he goes. And this is a fragmentary story when we first hear it from Li Yao. And increasingly for all of us, it was a story that spoke to the fugitive nature of so many of these lives and someone sort of washed up on the shores of history and he disappears. You know, he just disappears on his on his. And no way. one in the family ever saw him again. No one in the family mm. saw him again and it's a kind of metaphor for so much of what happens subsequently. Yes, because it is a bit of a portent really, I think, of what happens to Lee Yao and his family and there's the sort of that loss and disappearance runs right through it because Lee Yao's parents were unfairly labelled as landlords and during the Cultural Revolution that was absolutely made them the object of, of suspicion. Is Lee deeply scarred by this or not? It's, it's a very interesting question, in fact. I mean, he's scarred in the sense, I think, that he's very careful about uh, who he shares his uh, views with. And I'm convinced, actually, that not many of his colleagues have heard the story in the kind of detail that we've heard it. So... That is something he shared with us and uh, we're very privileged to have heard it, I think. But he's pretty cautious about anything uh, political. I think he's um, very watchful around uh, who says what to whom and who he might be talking to. So he's learnt to be pretty cautious about how he conducts himself. There is an amazing story um, that... (laughs) quite took my breath away, um, reference to an embroidered pillow Mm. in the book um, with those two words, happy together, sewn onto the pillow. Now, could you tell us about the significance of that? Because I think it does illustrate the scale of what he and his family went through. Yes, the embroidered pillow, you'll be surprised to know that I'm an authority on the bridal pillows of China. (laughs) Maybe I wouldn't be surprised. (laughs) (laughs) But apparently it was a tradition for um, newlyweds to have a pillow with the characters happy together embroidered on it and either the the bride-to-be or aunties or others in the family would uh, gift this uh, to the new couple. And when Li Yao, uh, as a young uh, young man, a teenager, went from the hometown to his university to start his university life in uh, in Mongolia, uh, his mother gave him the pillow as a memory of the family and and family life, along with a bag of oats. And he ended up, of course, in a time of a very tense political. Uh, struggle and turbulence where it was necessary to be more red and revolutionary than anyone else. And people in his uh, class, in his dormitory, noticed that he had this pillow and they, in a sense, denounced it as uh, old thinking, uh, old habits, old ways. Uh, had a kind of feudal connotation that was uh, contrary to the revolutionary sentiment that was meant to be cultivated at the time. And uh, basically they said to him that he had to uh, cut it out uh, of the pillow. So he borrowed a pair of scissors, cut out the characters from the pillow, uh, handed them over to the people who were uh, supervising him and they destroyed it. Oh, my 
Goodness. And just before we move on to landscape, you do also, when you're weaving in this historical context to the events of his life, I was struck by an episode where you talk about Mao urging people to come forward with suggestions on how to improve the communist regime, but it was actually a trap. Yes, I mean, it was the 100th Flowers uh, campaign, which was uh, created as an opportunity to have people uh, make um, worthwhile comments. But uh, what they didn't understand was it was also an opportunity to identify the people who were um, indulging in wrong thought and uh, who were on the wrong track. And so they were uh, identified and uh, exposed by this uh, process. Mm, Extraordinary. Look, I did mention that your wife was fundamental to this book coming to fruition. How so? Why was she so vital in it? Well, Karen was with us uh, throughout the travels, of course, across China, and she uh, took many of the notes. She took the photographs. Uh, she also had to read the text uh, to me aloud, uh, uh, since I have a sight problem. So a major sight problem. Uh, a major <laughs> because a of major macular. S- <laughs> you are legally blind, aren't you? Yeah, <laughs> yes, I, I'm legally blind. So um, she read it uh, through many times, which is a great way to improve the writing of a book. I think to read it aloud, and of course, in the process, made a number of editorial. Uh, suggestions and changes and she was also involved in doing a lot of the uh, research into uh, arcane matters of uh, around the Communist Party and Inner Mongolia and and so on to ensure that we got it right. Now let me just tell listeners that David Walker's my guest and he and Lee Yao and his wife uh, Karen have written Happy Together Bridging the Australia-China Divide I mean, your own story with your small potatoes parents was far more, I mean, you thrived, didn't you? You didn't have setbacks like this. I mean, the differences between the two cultures in the 20th century and what average citizens went through is absolutely profound, isn't it? It is. I mean, we wanted the two stories to run alongside each other. We we didn't want to make a lot of judgments about them either, as a matter of fact, on the way through. But we thought that uh, a dual memoir with those two stories woven together would enrich each other. Certainly mine was much happier in the sense that I got off to Adelaide University from my small potato background. Why did Li Yao, has he stayed in China, given what he went through, given his acclaim as a, a translator? Why doesn't he do what a lot of others do and move? One of the things that uh, we came to appreciate about uh, Liao is that he loves China and we love travelling with him through China because we also saw so much that uh, ordinary travellers don't get to see. You know, we went to a lot of quite remote places. Um, We went uh, deep into the grasslands. And all of these places, despite the bitter memories often or the tough experiences that he had, still speak to him as a Chinese person. And um, I don't think he really wants to leave China. He's not in any sense a person who thinks of himself as other than Chinese. Mm. I don't think he wants mm. to be an expatriate. He don't, doesn't want to live in another country particularly. So I think, again, it's part of the the deep paradox of the book in a way that you could have those experiences but you could still be very patriotically Chinese, which I think he is, and not in a flag-waving sense but just as someone who is embedded in the culture 
who appreciates the depth of its history yes. and just loves its landscapes and its uh, sociability, its generosity. I might add before we go, uh, you do write about landscapes quite extensively in the book and you said that countryside has a different significance for Chinese people compared with us. Yes, I think it's still the case in China that uh, whereas we think of the country as therapeutic, we tend to go there to heal ourselves or feel better. For many Chinese, I think, the country or countryside is still a place of exile. You know, it's where you're sent if you've done something wrong. And I think that uh, connotation still clings to the idea of uh, country and countryside in China. This is a a centuries-wide sort of experience, is it? Well, I think it's particularly strong after the Cultural Revolution, but it's still around now. It's still around now. You'll have people who would far prefer to live in Beijing, an apartment in Beijing, than go bush. So it's sort of banishment to go to the country. Yes, yes, I think so. And Mm. I think it still has that connotation, that uh, stigma lingers over it. What do you hope people get from this rather unusual memoir? Well, I hope they get the people-to-people dimension of the story. I hope they get the fact that Li Yao and I were able to form a very strong friendship and a deep collaboration and that these things are possible in difficult times and indeed they're more important in difficult times, I think, and that... um, While he has learned a lot about Australia, we certainly learned a lot about China. And so while there's a very dark uh, side to the story, there's also a very positive side to collaboration and uh, working together. So we want people to see that along with the other dimensions of the story that you've uh, mentioned. Well, David, thank you very much indeed for outlining all that. I only wish we could have talked to Lee. Uh, I do appreciate your time. Thank you, Geraldine. David Walker and Lee Yao, the co-authors of Happy Together, Bridging the Australia-China Divide, published by Melbourne University Press. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.